Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1991, director James Cameron and star Arnold Schwarzenegger gave the world an explosive sequel that reversed roles for one of the greatest villains of all time. In 2023, we take a return trip to Kentucky to try one of the Jim Beam Corporation's small batch selections. The film is Terminator 2, colon, Judgment Day. <laughs> the whiskey is Knob Creek Nine Year. And we'll review them both. This is... The, the Film and Whiskey, Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, we are wrapping up our four-week mini retrospective of the films of James Cameron with 1991's Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Brad, I have been waiting for this week for a long time. And uh, in my professional opinion, you know, as a, as a man who analyzes film on the regular, uh, this film freaking rips, dude. This is <laughs> such a good movie. And, I, you know, I, it's a recurring theme with our James Cameron episode so far that we haven't gone as deep into the the deep themes of his movies because there is so much there to talk about from a technical standpoint. And because Cameron is just, uh, you know, frankly, not the most subtle in terms of uh, <laughs> burying his themes. So it's been really interesting and kind of brief to talk about his film so far. And I think today is really no exception to that. Yeah. I mean, for me coming into to T2, I was excited to see that it was made in 1991 because as I got through the film, I realized there's like almost no trace of the 80s in this movie. And that <laughs> immediately bumped it up in my estimation. Noted hater of 1980s culture, Brad G, uh, <laughs> has emerged. And if you're joining us right now, you can hear in the background a third chuckle, and that chuckle belongs to our special guest for the day, film writer and historian Ian Nathan. He's joining us all the way from the UK. It is 8 p.m. at the time of recording. We had initially asked him to come on at a time that would have been 1.30 in the morning his time. So thank you for being flexible and, and making concessions, Ian, and we appreciate you being here. No, absolute pleasure. And I want a delight to talk about Terminator 2 Judgment Day. You have to kind of put the emphasis on Judgment Day, no matter how you say it, Judgment Day, because that's what it is. The first question, <laughs> and maybe the most important that I'll ask you, is uh, did the UK release of this film include the uh, the E in the word judgment? No, it didn't. Oh, interesting. And, uh, it, it didn't, and it's one of those things that confounded sub-editors and sort of designers in the UK. I used to work on the film magazine, and we always had to think about Judgment Day. I think it was one of the, we had a little rule book 
And it was always like Terminator 2 Judgment Day. No E. Oh, how <laughs> to Remember that one. What are these Americans like? They're polluting our language. But we had to accept. With all, all those things. extra E's they have in there. Right. <laughs> well, we're going to take Ian's word at face value today because he is one of the UK's best known film writers. He's a former editor at Empire. He was editor in chief of Empire Online. Uh, he's been the producer of the Empire Awards for 15 years. He also literally wrote the book on James Cameron. In addition to writing retrospectives on a number of filmmakers, he has a newly released book on James Cameron. It's not his first book on James Cameron or his films, which is, uh, I think, what makes him even more of an expert in our eyes. <laughs> so, Ian, I, I have to ask you, you know, you've written books on the yeah. Coen brothers. You've written, you know, uh, Wes Anderson, Guillermo del Toro. What is it about Cameron's films and Cameron as a figure that makes you continue to return to him as a subject? Uh, it's, it's a very good question. Uh, I think part of it is how I grew up and the films I grew up with and the age I was seeing the original Terminator on VHS and sort of coming in and seeing Aliens, which had a profound effect on me at cinema. I mean, the levels of excitement in Aliens still hit me. And then Terminator 2 coming in 1991, I just started to become a, a film writer and critic at that point. And the anticipation for Terminator 2 was so huge. So he's a huge part of my life. Plus, when you write about directors and you, you, you choose your subjects, there's a sense of what will make a great book, what will tell a great story. And as I'm sure you guys have been talking about the, the previous weeks, there's pretty few directors who tell a story like James Cameron. And the story of the making of his films is equally incredible. So he's such a great subject to, to grapple with, to tell. And as a as a sort of as a quote machine, he's a, just a fabulous self-mythologizer. Yeah, he just talks <laughs> in big statements, you know, one-liners. Cameron gives you the material. And it just, you know, it's one of the, in a sense, the easiest books I've ever written. Only, and I mean, yeah, it was easy because it's an easy subject. It's just that the story flows from one film to the next and the momentum of Cameron's life is is just incredible. So he was kind of a gift in, in a way. We've done a few films on the podcast where the making of the film is the stuff of legend. You, you know, obviously Apocalypse Now is probably the prime example yeah. of that. And that fantastic documentary Hearts of Darkness that came out of that. And with Cameron, I feel like you, you get those stories with every subsequent film. <laughs> there, I mean, the behind the scenes gems from movies like this, uh, The Ringer did a fantastic oral history on T2 a couple years ago, and I was reading through it today and just pulling quotes out of it because, like you said, uh, to hear Cameron talk about himself and talk about uh, his belief in his own ambition is hilarious, but it's also something that he continually backs up. He sold off yeah. the rights for Titanic, you know, or he waived his director's fee on Titanic. He did kind of a similar thing with the first Terminator where he sold off his own rights to the film to make sure that it got released. And that played a huge part in whether or not they could secure the rights to even make Terminator 2. And so, you know, he talks a big game, but he's also willing to go to some pretty drastic lengths to make sure that his vision is realized up on the screen. Yeah, I mean, people always talk about James Cameron's ego and obviously you know, the, the kind of power of his personality. There's a great quote from Michael Bean. It's always said that James Cameron doesn't have an ego. His films have an ego. Hmm. So when he makes them, the films are just, you know, the, the obsession that he has. And they are the driving force. They're more important than the money he makes. They're more important than the power he wields. 
the film is all important and turns, I think, turns him into something of a madman sometimes to get to where he needs to be. But pursuing that vision is what Cameron wants to do and what he's so good at. And with the strength and talent that he has, often he gets near to that thing in his head. I don't know if he's ever quite got to the the perfect films in his head, but that is the driving force behind him. He he honestly feels like a real life version of almost every single Tom Cruise character from the movies <laughs> he did in the 80s and 90s. Like yeah. just utterly driven to prove everyone wrong and create the best possible version of whatever it is that he's good at. You know, for Cameron, it's movies and and he he makes a hell of a good movie, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I would always say you know, James Cameron's biggest rival is James Cameron. Mm. So he's always got to go one better than himself. He's always got to kind of outreach what he did before and, and go further. And, you know, it, it must be really hard living in James Cameron's head because the drive to better yourself all the time just goes on and on. Oh, absolutely. To the point where in order to realize these visions, he has to invent new technology with each film he makes now. It's it's not even a question of, all right, how do I secure the funding or or how do I get the perfect, uh, you know, assemble the perfect Dreamcast? Yeah. It's how do I invent a camera that can actually capture these things that are going on in my mind? And once I do that, then I can go ahead and execute the film. It's it's staggering the kind of things that are going on in his mind. Yeah, I, you know, in some ways, the, the word director doesn't really apply to James Cameron. He's explorer, inventor, sort of diviner of the future, and has an astonishing instinct. Uh, and it's something I don't think he would be able to explain himself for what mass audiences want. You know, if you look at the figures on his films, as I'm sure you've been doing, yeah, he, he puts everyone in, in, the, in the shade, mm -hmm. Lucas, Spielberg, you know, all the great you know, hit filmmakers of the modern age, they're nothing comp you know, compared to Cameron. In fact, when I did the, on the new book, I kind of calculated, presuming you can't really put a value on the Mona Lisa or the, the Sistine Chapel, James Cameron is the most successful artist of all time, <laughs> you know, in any medium. <laughs> you know, he as an individual, I know you can say Disney is a corporation, right? Sure. More money, but but as an individual, there's no one who comes close to him. Hmm. And yet he's kind of neglected in a way. He's kind of, you know, he's just sort of, he's over there doing his thing. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to write a book about him now, because I thought there wasn't enough out there that took him seriously. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do that. Well, we are incredibly excited that you're on board today to join us in that endeavor. We are going to switch over to America's favorite segment. And I say that like <laughs> in a very combative way because we're joined by our UK counterpart today. But uh, America's favorite segment is called Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, was this your first time viewing Terminator 2? This was my absolute first time viewing oh, this film, Bob. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. <laughs> For those of you who are new to the podcast, the central conceit of what we're doing here is that I grew up consuming movies frequently and uh, voraciously. I'm a huge, huge film buff. And Brad is one of my best friends. And we started kind of introducing each other to our shared loves of films and whiskey when we lived in Kentucky together a few years back. And so each week we're watching a new classic movie. And a lot of times that means that Brad is catching it for the very first time. It is always a surprise when a movie as successful as something like Terminator 2 has gone unseen by Brad. But that also means that we get the most unfiltered version of Brad. He has, uh, you know, 
there's not a lot of historical context taken into consideration. It's just, was this good? Was it not good? Was I bored? <laughs> and that is what Brad Explains is all about. Brad, we've put a minute on the clock for you to break down the plot of this movie and go. Two butt-naked robots are sent back from the future in order <laughs> to track down a human. Uh, this human is a 10-year-old who's pretty much a 14-year-old going through puberty pretty hard. He is the future leader of the Resistance. One of these robots looks like the robot from the last movie, uh, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he this time is sent to protect John Connor. Uh, the other robot is sent to kill John Connor. Chaos ensues. Connor's mother is an absolute badass and is able to just destroy everyone. And she's really cool <laughs> and is awesome. She's also in a mental ward and has to get broken out. And they stop Cyberdyne from making the Terminators and they win the war. The Boom. end. I, the I end. love I love when <laughs> you can tell that the pressure of the moment is mounting. As, as the last 20 seconds tick away, because Brad just starts saying stuff like she's cool and she's awesome. <laughs> to, I, I would give this movie one thumbs up. There, there you go. <laughs> oh, man. All right, Brad, where would you like to start today? Do you want to talk a little bit about this movie in relation to the first Terminator? Do you just want to give opening thoughts on Cameron's filmmaking? Do you want to dive right into performances? Where should we steer this ship? I think it's worth talking about the performances because for me, the the primary reason this film jumps to a new level from the original Terminator is because I think you get much better performances out of everybody involved. You know, I think that Michael Bean was really, really great in the first one, but comparatively, I, for me, I think that T2 has just really awesome performances from everybody you see yeah. schwarzenegger growing as an actor i think that uh furlong as john connor does a really great job and linda hamilton just goes on steroids and is <laughs> awesome so <laughs> yeah let's start with linda hamilton so one of our first uh, you know our chief complaints from the first film was that linda hamilton is not really given enough to do on the page and so, therefore, her performance, I think, kind of suffers a little bit for that. Cameron took a lot of inspiration from the slashers of the late 70s and early 80s for the original Terminator film. And in a lot of ways, Linda Hamilton is a variation on that last girl, quote unquote, trope. And I think here, you know, obviously there was a little bit of coaxing involved to get Linda Hamilton back on board. But the way they flushed the character out and she kind of had a stated a uh, goal that she wanted to be crazy in this movie. <laughs> and it's really interesting to read <laughs> yeah. Cameron talk about it because he's like, what do you mean crazy? Like you're in an institution. She's like, yeah, I just want to be crazy. Just make sure that's in there at some point. He's <laughs> like, all right, cool. We'll, we'll do it. She, you know, she works out for, I don't know, a months long regimen with a personal trainer. Brad, this was one of the first times that you really started to see um, the the sculpting of the female body on screen in a way like this where there was bodybuilding involved. And, the, you know, the first time you see her, she's doing chin-ups. And it was something that audiences in 91 were not really prepared for. And especially that physical transformation from part one to part two here, it really does kind of uh, foreshadow what's to come with the way that her character is going to transform. And I think it's, I mean, just first of all, great job with the personal trainer. She looks amazing. 
(laughs) (laughs) But it's a really great visual cue for where this story is going. And that means that it's going in unpredictable places. Yeah, I think for me with with Linda Hamilton, what she really did best was show how knowledge of the future can really break you as a person. And I, I think that there's a few key moments where you can tell you're like, oh, she's a really great actress. It, for me, it's the moment where she sees Arnold for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. The mm. the absolute terror and fear on her face as she runs back into the arms of her captors to get away from him is perfection. It makes the first movie, like, worth watching just to see that scene. That You know, obviously, the first movie is worth watching on its own. But just to understand that, the rawness of that scene, I, oh, my gosh, dude, that was incredible. Yeah, it's just it's great to you, you look at the, the concept of Terminator Two. It's everything is inversion. Hmm. So you know Arnold is bad in the first film; he's good in this film. And I think when they came to sort of create the character of Sarah Connor, and as you say, uh, Linda Hamilton sort of was coming. You know, she said, "I, I want to be crazy, Jim. I'm not coming back. I'm going to be crazy." It made perfect sense to Cameron. You know, when she said that, because obviously she knows the world is going to end and no one believes her. And that's going to drive you mad. Hmm. But the idea brilliantly is that in a sense to to combat the future, to to somehow defeat what's coming, she's turning herself into a Terminator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you look at the, the the family unit that forms with Arnie, her and, and Edward Furlong, you know, in a sense, the joke is that she's a better Terminator and he's a better mother hmm. to the boy is that everything is inverted. Yeah. And that's kind of this, the great skill of Cameron is to you know take expectations, certainly of a sequel, and say, well, I'm going to work out how to spin everything on its head. You know, with the first film, Sarah Connor is the least likely person to mother the future. You know, he's the most unlikely he's kind of waitress in, in LA. Now he's saying, right, well, how can I turn her from what we saw in the first film into this extraordinary vision of of kind of tough commando-esque violence in a way mm-hmm. and you say she she trained for a, a year i think with an israeli armed force teacher and she could pull a weapon apart without looking and she could pick her own locks i mean it's absolute almost method dedication from linda hamilton and i i think what i love about cameron in the way he subverts things is he doesn't do it in such a way that is like making fun of or ripping down yeah. on the past. Like, I feel like if if you think about the words subverting expectations in 2022, you almost know that if somebody's trying to do that, they're doing so in such a way where it's dishonoring the past and like saying that the past was bad. Whereas I think what Cameron does here is is he just twists what he did in the first movie, but he does it in such a way that a, it makes sense within the world of the film. Like you said, you know, yeah. she has seen the the coming end of all humanity, so this would make sense for her. But he does it in such a way where you still see her humanness break through. She has moments where, you know, she's trying to kill this this computer programmer yeah. and she can't do it. And and she's almost weeping afterwards and uh, you know, her son brings out the best in her the way any child should bring out the best in their parents. And so there's so many moments like that as well that that Cameron just hits all the right beats with her uh, area of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And you can obviously the there's the chain of characters in Cameron's films. It's spoken about a lot, strong female leads. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, there's a lot of Ripley in her and his work with Scorny Weaver. There's the terrific Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio from The Abyss. Yeah. There's kind of a progression, I think, and his return to Sarah Connor is very much, I think, he includes those performances before. And his own mother, Cameron's own mother, you know, belonged to the sort of Canadian Reserve Army and would go away on weekends in fatigues and, you know, mm. knew how to strip down rifles. So I think there's a lot of Cameron's mother in there as well with the character. I'm really interested, Ian. Has Cameron ever gone on record talking about the way that his deepening of the character of Ripley in Aliens informed the way he deepened the character of Sarah Connor here? Like, does he like to draw that comparison or is that something that he kind of leaves unsaid? Uh, He's never made a direct comparison in that way. I think he's certainly spoken about his progression as a director was very influenced by the people he got to work with. And I think Sigourney Weaver was very important to him in the sense of, you know, she's tough, Sigourney Weaver. Mm -hmm. So she sort of stood up to him and his demands. And I think he learned a lot from how to handle an actress with Sigourney Weaver that he took forward into the, the the future films. And I just think he has, I come back to the word instinct, um, you know, the, the ideas that he sort of fleshes out within his films are always driven by human themes. And I know we'll come on to themes, but motherhood keeps returning mm-hmm. as a theme in the films. And Terminator 2, it is a film about motherhood. I mean, she's not a great mother. She's gone mad, but she has to awaken to the idea that actually as well as trying to save humanity, she's got to sort of save her relationship with her son. Mm-hmm. And that's Cameron. Yeah, he dresses up apocalyptic ideas in very universal themes. And lo- he says, every film I make is a love story. And I kind of get that. They're not necessarily romantic love stories. They're sort of sure. about family love stories. But that's what drives the, the kind of accessibility of his films. Well, and yet for all of his uh, ambition and innovation, he he keeps hitting on a very specific formula that I suppose if it's not broke, don't fix it. But all of his sequels have improved upon their predecessors, I would say. That's my opinion. By adding the element of family as the chief thematic component. Right. I mean, he does it yeah. with aliens by introducing that character uh, to be alongside Ripley. He does it here with Terminator 2. He just did it with Avatar The Way of Water. I was really blown away at the emotional depth that Cameron was kind of able to plumb with that movie and the way that he chooses to end that film. And I'm not, I, you know, I'm sure by now most people have seen it, but I'm yeah. not going to give away the final scene of that film. But it was so small and so quiet and so profoundly heartbreaking for a James Cameron film. And I thought it was a really bold move to end the film that way. Uh, But, you know, when you take a step back and just kind of look at it from a a 30,000 foot view, it just kind of seems like he has found the secret to success for sequels. And that is introduce those emotional stakes that were absent from the first entry. Uh, Absolutely. He he, fundamentally, he's like Hitchcock in that and and Spielberg to, to a degree in that he thinks from the perspective of the audience. So what will they feel and think from his films? You know, not what can I do? How will they react is what drives him. Mm-hmm. And then all the kind of elements of technology and writing and ambition follow that. So, you know, with, with Terminator, it wasn't just a case of how do I do, you know, how can I better the first film? How can I do more? It's about what moves people and what drives, you know, the audience to feel things. And anyhow, the famous story is that you know William Wisher, who wrote the screenplay with him, is his old friend. When they sat down finally to write Terminator 2, 
Cameron's got this kind of weathered yellow legal pad, and he's just written on, you know, Terminator comes back from the future to save the boy. He's going to make, you know, to, to look after the boy. And he says to William Wisher, he goes, I'm going to make audiences cry for a Terminator. And he said, mm. that will prove what cinema can do. I think the, the subtext there is that's what proves what James Cameron can do. And of course, right. <laughs> he does make us cry for a Terminator. You know, the most absurd concept possible. By the end, it's like old yellow. We're, we're just weeping, Yeah, you know, for the end of a Terminator. So emotion is the the kind of the driving force of Cameron's films. And even beyond the um, the emotion of of like nostalgia and that that love for Arnold you have in this film, I found T two to be one of the funniest action movies yeah. I've ever watched. Hmm. Like, there's so many moments in this film where I was just roaring laughing, and you know it helps to watch it at your house. You don't have to worry about laughing in a theater with other people who are taking it really seriously. <laughs> but there's so many moments where. Arnold reaches down and picks up like a one and a half year old and just examines yeah, yeah. him the way a robot would <laughs> as everybody else is just talking around and paying no attention to him. I just thought there were so many little moments like this where Cameron, his comedy just yeah. worked. Well, yeah. I think that's that's testament as well. And to segue back into the performances here, you know, Arnold is the only other person that we're going to talk about today that was in the first film. And his growth as an actor throughout the 1980s to the point where you get this film in 1991, directors had figured out how to leverage his charm and his comedic timing, which I don't think people like John Milius even knew that he would have had comedic timing. And Arnold is a really, really skilled comedy actor by the time you get to T2. And Cameron will leverage that even further when he gets to True Lies a few years after this. And, you know, it again, credit to Cameron for utilizing it. But. I, I think the main thing that I took away was I'm glad that Cameron gave Arnold the space to be charming in this film. And when he gives that little grin towards the end of the film, it's like, oh, my gosh, I just saw a Terminator smile and I'm totally buying it at this point. And that is a huge testament to Arnold's performance. He's playing a cyborg. And yet I think he hits all the beats he's supposed to hit pretty much flawlessly. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's his best performance, Terminator mm. 2. There's, there's real subtlety in it. And again, such a kind of nutty thing to say, isn't it? You know, about a guy playing a Terminator. How can it be subtle? But obviously the, the idea with, with this kind of new version of the T-800, the Arnie model of, of Terminator, is that he's learning and he's learning from the boy. So it's got a trajectory in which he sort of picks up, he becomes more human as the film goes on, because he's learning what it is to be human. So it's a great arc that the film gives him. Mm -hmm. Plus it still channels what we know of the original Terminator, the body language, the, the kind of indomitability, the going the path of least resistance stuff, which is very funny and very skillfully raised. I mean, the opening sequence alone of Terminator 2, when he goes into the biker bar and there's a kind of classic <laughs> bar fight, but it's just yeah. hilarious and it signals very quickly to the audience that you're going to be allowed to laugh at this this film. There's going to be a lot of serious stuff. There's going to be a lot of action, a lot of fear in the film. But actually, there's going to be comedy. And Cameron sort of with his opening sequence, which Arnie sort of you know beats up a load of Hell's Angels and drives away on the Harley at the end, <laughs> just goes, yeah, well, you know, it's just a great sort of sigh of relief almost as you see it and go, okay, we're with him now. Yeah. Also, like when you talk about him filming it in a sense from the viewpoint of the audience, 
the idea of Mr. Universe just walking around buck naked <laughs> is just purely funny. Like there's no way around that. It it just it just hits all the right notes. And I it, it's little things like that where you're just like yeah, there's certain things he repeated from the first film. They arrive naked, and it mm-hmm. it's just funny, and it shouldn't be because it's you know it's an action horror film. But man, this movie made me laugh. <laughs> well, and to go back to something that Ian was saying, I think part of the reason the comedy works so well is it's the construction of the story, and it is the introduction of the T1000 played by Robert Patrick, and how the you know the the kind of central conflict between <laughs> the two of them is that there is an upgraded model now, and that provides so much kind of comic tension and a great comic setup. And you see it played out in so many different places across film. But even though the Terminator, you know, Arnold's Terminator is uh, practically invincible and incredibly intelligent and certainly much smarter than any human, it's played kind of as a buffoon in a lot of ways. He's clumsy. He's very robotic in his movement. He doesn't understand the cues of humor or emotion. And so you get to kind of play up those iron giant type, you know, mm-hmm. tropes about him. You know, and I mean, I was even thinking just a moment ago about the uh, Buzz Lightyear and Woody element in, in Toy Story. There's a new upgraded model that Andy wants to play with now. And so because the audience has that incredibly terrifying new figure to look at. And another obstacle that Sarah and John Connor have to overcome, you can then look back on the the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator and and play up the humor in that situation. I think it's really brilliant that by introducing that upgraded model, you immediately introduce a great source of humor into the film. And it was something that I think was really desperately needed because the first film is so serious throughout that having those like... uh pressure release valves throughout the movie as the tension builds Cameron executes them flawlessly yeah, yeah it's you know th- there were various uh, sort of concepts that Cameron worked through um, in the intervening years and you know he always thought well you've got to go better with the sequel you know it's called T2 so he always had a two Terminator idea one concept was two Arnies, a good Arnie and a bad Arnie. Mm-hmm. But he just thought, how am I going to tell them apart? And, you know, one's going to have to be damaged very early. So, you know, it's that Terminator. And it just got too complicated. And he sort of sat down and thought, well, how do I turn Arnold Schwarzenegger into an underdog? And that, you know, he's the Terminator, as you're saying. He's virtually unbreakable. But, you know, the concept of the liquid metal man and this kind of infiltration unit but also there's the idea of him playing a cop as well, you know, embodying mm-hmm. kind of authority, whereas Arnie's a hell's angel dressed in leather jackets, anti-authority. There's these lovely kind of sort of sort of comparisons that the film sets up. And you say Terminator, the original Terminator, wasn't wholly a comedy. I would kind of say it was a quite a bit of black comedy in its own way, and that's down to Schwarzenegger. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. funny in the first film. And he's funny in this film. There's kind of a self-mockery going on that's very appealing. As you were saying, the charm of it works yeah. really well. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the other two main performers in the film. And I, I think I want to start with Robert Patrick, because we've already been talking about him, playing the T-1000. And again, I think that the performance matches really well with what's on the page. But I also think that this is a credit to Cameron when you introduce a character like this, that there is so much awe and so much um, 
I don't know, inquisitiveness on, on the part of the audience. You want to learn more about this thing because it is so wholly new. The technology to represent it was entirely new, but also it makes so much sense from a narrative standpoint that, okay, if uh, the machines are losing the war and the original line of Terminators are not working because they're too obvious, what's the next step? Well, we're going to make something that can morph into anything else where subtlety is the name of the game. And Cameron really wanted to re have somebody represented physically that looked different from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Whereas Arnold walks into a room and everyone knows I cannot defeat that man in hand to hand combat. You know, Robert Patrick walks in a room and he is certainly more agile. He's a lot thinner. He's a lot, you know, he's just a slimmer build, but also making him a police officer, like you said, Ian, so that he can infiltrate those spaces, not simply through brute strength, but through disguise and camouflage. I think it's a really great narrative touch. I also was just fascinated with like the culture of the 80s and 90s that a police officer could just drive up to a, you know, secure tech company company facility and they're just like, "Oh, it's a police officer. We'll just just <laughs> let him in." <laughs> but he's great and you know, one of the great things about Robert Patrick's performance and it was vital as you were talking about that they gave the 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 T1000 the villain a personality, a character. And not only was it about being the policeman, he has that wonderful quality that was kind of there with Arnold Schwarzenegger in the first film of being just slightly irritated when things go wrong. <laughs> that, you know, the Cameron allows the machine to have a kind of flicker of annoyance. Yeah. When his plans keep kind of unraveling, you know, and these kind of attempts to kill this boy. It's kind of a fantastic kind of in joke, I think, just about the kind of the idea of while they are machines the audience is always going to project sort of humanity on them and they kind of project it back. We kind of see ourselves in the Terminators a little bit, I think. Absolutely. Brad, what's your take on Robert Patrick? I think he's incredible. I, mm -hmm. I think the way he runs is perfect. Like he has such, like, I think only, I mentioned him already, but I think only Tom Cruise might have better running form uh, in, in film history than Robert Patrick has here. Uh, like speaking as somebody who ran track for 10 years and continues to run, like there's right ways to run and there's wrong ways to run. If you want to do it fast, you know, if that's your goal and Robert Patrick nails it. And he, he put so much time and effort into this role that he trained to the point where he could sprint flat out without breathing heavily. Hmm. And that like, I will tell you, that is a lot of work to to get to that point. And, you know, he's chasing Edward Furlong on the dirt bike. And I, I'm like 90% sure that he could have caught up with that dirt bike at any point he wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk about Edward Furlong, because th this is a performance that has been really interesting to watch reactions to over the last 30 years. It was uh, initially, initially kind of praised and then almost immediately panned again. And I feel like our societal impulse towards criticizing children has swung back in the other direction now. And so people have reevaluated this performance. I actually think it's a really great performance. And I think that if there's anything to criticize, it's you know, it's some of Cameron's dialogue writing, which is a recurring theme we've talked about with Cameron. But especially for someone who was essentially a non-professional actor prior to this film, I think Furlong does a really, really great job. And 
when it most matters at the end of the film, he brings the goods in those emotional final moments with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so, you know, can you forgive a subpar line reading here and there? Absolutely. I think the kid's really, really good. He is, and he's crucial as well. I mean, Cameron sort of said it. He said all the, the special effects, all the kind of revolution in CGI, all the Arnie's and, and and Linda Hamilton's will mean nothing if we don't get John Connor right. You know, mm-hmm. He's essentially he's the protagonist of the film, the boy. So there's a lot of weight on his shoulders, and I think Cameron liked the rawness. You know, he, he was found at a boys and girls club in Pasadena. He'd never acted. He had a kind of troubled family background. There were kind of echoes of John Connor in him. And yeah, he was, you know, he needed molding, definitely. And if you look at the performance, some of it can be a little, you know, certainly the goofier elements don't maybe play as well. But I think the emotion does and the charisma does. Yeah, he's he's a spark, Edward Furlong, in the film. And, you know, off screen and on, the chemistry with Schwarzenegger is great. I think Schwarzenegger really took him under his wing in the production. Cameron was off doing all the big stuff and the stunts and and effects and those things. A lot of the work, I think, in terms of Furlong's performance actually came through Schwarzenegger and him sort of guiding him through the film. And, uh, yeah, maybe you can argue there are sort of greater child performances and maybe could have been better performances, but he gets me when I I watch the film and Mm -hmm. he doesn't pull me out of it. And, yeah, I think you've got to give credit to that. I think he gives a great job. I was actually very proud of my wife. Uh, We were watching this and my wife, famous for not knowing actors or actresses names, was like, oh, you know who the the kid reminds me of? I was like, who's that, honey? And she goes, Haley Joel Osment in Secondhand (laughs) Lions. And I was like, A, you just remembered his name. So props for that. But B, why? She's like, I don't know. They both just have that like preteen squeaky sincerity that just really fits for the movies that they're in. And I was like, babe, that is, that's some good film analysis there. <laughs> I was going to say, I think the the connecting thread is the uh, changing voice, oh, the Peter Brady syndrome. Easily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, I think we're, we're in a good spot here on the performances. Let's go ahead and take a break. Let's drink some whiskey, and then we'll come back and talk about all the rest of this, because, I mean, I want to talk about the CGI. I want to talk about the gigantic explosions of this explosive James Cameron film, and we'll go a little bit deeper on the themes. But, Brad, let's try this Knob Creek. What do you say? Let's get to it. Film and Whiskey Nation, do you ever think about awards? Of course you do. You drink whiskey and watch movies, which means that you know that nothing is validated until a group of random people say, hey, we love what you're doing. The awesome thing about Doc Swinson's whiskey is that it isn't just some group of schlubs that are giving them awards. They have been winning attention from some of the most important whiskey experts that you can imagine. They've been voted best distillery in Washington state by the New York International Spirits Competition. They've been voted the best independent bottler by the Ascot Awards, as well as the best finished bourbon from the Ascot Awards for their La Menta Exploratory Cask. Their Exploratory Cask series is where they release some of the most fascinating and adventurous experiments. If you're ever checking out Doc's lineup and see a white label, there's a really good chance that that's the only time you'll see that bottle, so make sure you snatch it up. Doc Swinson's has been offering just phenomenal finished and blended whiskeys for quite some time now. You can find them online at docswhiskey.com. That's D-O-C-S whiskey.com.
All right, today we are checking out Knob Creek. Brad, this is the first time that we've ever reviewed just the regular old Knob Creek on our podcast. We've tried, I believe, a single barrel Knob Creek way back in season one or two that we got down at our friend's Justin's House of Bourbon in Lexington, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So we've tried a barrel proof version of this, but we've never just tried, you know, the standard Knob Creek before. I can't believe we made it this long. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into it today. I, I'm i honestly trying to remember any thoughts I had on that original version we tried. And I, for the life of me, man, I can't think of what I thought about it. Well, we'll get into this one pretty quickly here. But just for some background, Knob Creek is part of what Jim Beam calls their small batch collection, which is comprised of Knob Creek, Basil Hayden's, Booker's, and Baker's bourbons. So there's one at kind of every proof point. If you like a low proof whiskey, then Basil Hayden's is the way to go. This is the next one up at 100 proof. Then you've got Baker's at 107 and Booker's is always bottled at cask strength. Brad, I think this means that the only one of the four that we have not tried is Baker's. So we got to get on that. man. Yeah. We got to complete the set here. I have had Baker's before and can confirm Good whiskey. Good whiskey. Yeah, so like I said, this is bottled at 100 proof. It carries a nine-year age statement, meaning it's been in the barrel for nine years. For a while there, Jim Beam was releasing this without an age statement, which just means they were probably blending it with some younger whiskey. Uh, but now it carries that nine-year age statement, which means the youngest whiskey in this bottle is at least nine years of age. Uh, it's 77% corn, 13% rye, and 10% malted barley in the mash bill. So this is not a four grain recipe. And Brad, I, you know, not to spoil anything here, I've been sipping on it already. And I can tell that this definitely has some rye in it. This thing packs a little bit of a punch for me. Yeah, it definitely gets a little bit spicy throughout. Uh, I'm, yeah, I think we should just get into it, Bob, because I have thoughts. I do, too. And we're joined again here by Ian Nathan. It's pretty rare that our guest for the day actually sits down and drinks the whiskey with us. But Ian, you were, uh, if I may say so. Yes. Pretty pretty eager to join. And we are happy to have you <laughs> along on the journey here. Yeah, I, I am a I am a whiskey drinker. I, I do enjoy a, a nice bourbon as well. So when you suggested not only would I talk about movies, that I would also drink whiskey. Well, that, that persuaded me. So I'm, I'm very interested <laughs> to, you know, to, to bring a bring a high level of discussion to the nature of whiskey as well. Absolutely. As good thing. All right, guys, let's dive right in. So our first category that we score our whiskeys on is the nose. So when you take, you know, a, a little sniff of this on the aroma, what do you pick up here? Brad, I don't think that this one is uh, super complex for me. Like the first thing I got, you know, aside from the ethanol, because it's 100 proof, is this <laughs> smelled a lot like Coca-Cola to me. It had those mm. kind of like almost artificial caramely notes to it and a little bit of that the the coke bubbles the effervescence so i got coca-cola i got caramel the rye was a lot more prominent on this than uh i would have been led to believe so it definitely had a spiciness about it that i really like i think it's pretty inviting even though it's not the most complex whiskey we've ever nosed i think i would give it a, about a seven and a half on the nose yeah, I'm actually in the exact same place as, as you with a seven and a half, Bob. For me, I, I got some softer notes. I had some honey on the front end, a little bit of vanilla. Uh, there was some some floral aspects to this. It had a lightness to it. But I will say there was a there's a decent amount of graininess as well that that came across when you were talking about cola. 
For me, it was more of just like a corn syrup and mm. almost a raw corn feel. Honestly, a, a pretty pleasant nose overall. So yeah, seven and a half for me. Ian, where are you feeling with the uh, nose here? Yeah, I, I kind of I concur a little bit. I, I thought you know caramel toffee, uh, very much a kind of uh, I call it Christmassy kind of flavor. Now you mentioned Coca Cola, I do get that as well, but also you mentioned the kind of the the kind of floral uh, element to it, mm-hmm. very much getting that the kind of uh, the sort of highlights that that come off it. Uh, it's it's very pleasant to, to smell, quite traditional, uh, I suppose, with those kind of caramelly honey notes. I would, I would go seven and a half. Yeah, I've always been curious, you know, from from someone in the UK, your perspective yeah. of American whiskey. I have a feeling, <laughs> I mean, if, if I was one of you, I would probably think about, you know, the palate of a bourbon is very much in line with just American palates in general, because it's so much sweeter than you normally yes. get with a scotch or an Irish whiskey. Do you find it like hard to adjust expectations when you're going between you know, a, a scotch or an Irish whiskey and a bourbon? Uh, I, I don't find it difficult. Uh, I do understand the differences. Um, uh, having drunk far more of the, the the kind of traditional Irish and Scots whiskeys, I sometimes find when I have a bourbon, I, the immediate reaction is it's very sweet. Mm-hmm. And you know, your, your Jack Daniels you know, is, is the obvious one. You suddenly think, whoa, yeah, that, that's a bit too nice. You know, it goes down too easily, um, <laughs> which is a danger. Yeah. Um, with this one, as I said I've you know, had a few sips. There's, there's some nice, you mentioned spicy early on. There's some nice sort of, yeah, sort of a, a kind of bitterness to it that I think is quite pleasant because it sort of works against the, the sweetness. Mm-hmm. But uh, generally speaking, I, I'm kind of ready for a bourbon when I have it. I do know it's going to be a little bit more, a bit more on the sweeter side. Yeah, I think that's a great segue into our tasting category here. Brad, I actually thought that this was surprisingly soft on the palate compared to the nose. I, I just, I really expected a, almost like a, you know, a, a cake icing type of flavor on this because it really felt like it was going to have a lot of brown sugar or maple flavors to it. It was less sweet than I anticipated to Ian's point. Uh, really, really oaky. I think the nine years in the barrel definitely present themselves here and it didn't quite go bitter, but um, certainly not sweet. I do appreciate it. It felt very oily in my mouth. It definitely coated my palate well. I didn't find it to be especially harsh alcohol-wise, even at 100 proof. I liked this, but it definitely was a step down from the nose for me. So I think I'll give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you, man. For me, it continued to be corn heavy. Some of those floral notes came through, but the oakiness, uh, a little bit of a, a clove spice came into it. It was good, but a step down from the nose. So I'll, I'll give it a six and a half there. Yeah, as I say, I, I very much like the the kind of the, the kind of duality of it, the kind of this sweet on the front of the tongue and a pepperiness at the back of the tongue. So I'd go with a seven. All right, and that takes us to finish. Now, this is where we kind of consider what flavors, what sensations are left behind on the palate after you swallow. For me, Brad, this was all oak. I mean, it really turned super oak heavy on the end for me. And there's really not much else there. I wasn't left with any lingering sweetness. There wasn't any, even for me, like any corn left on this. Again, not bitter. And I guess there's probably a touch of some brown sugar or something. But 
Yeah, I, I'm a little bit bummed because the nose was really inviting. And I feel like each successive step of the tasting is just a slight step down for me. I'm going to give it a seven, uh, but I would say that this is merely good, not great. Yeah, I man, I I really want to enjoy this whiskey, Bob. I, I feel like there's something going on here, but the finish was really where I struggled with this. It, it just kind of dissipated into nothingness for me. I, I didn't feel like there was enough flavor on the back end of this experience to give it a high score. It wasn't bad. It, you know, it was oaky. I continued to see that corn coming through. There was some caramel notes. But overall, it didn't last long enough or have enough complexity for me to truly enjoy it. Um, it it's okay on the finish. I, I gave it a 6 out of 10. The aftertaste to me is, is similar to what you said. It's really the weakest element. I, I'm left mainly with the the kind of the darker notes, the stronger mm-hmm. sort of peppery, um, spicier notes. The, the the kind of nice caramel flavor has gone very quickly. Uh, it's not the most pleasant aftertaste of, of a bourbon I've ever had. It's sort of a bit of a a little bit of an up and down. It, it starts nicely and then disappears too quickly. I think as a flavor. So a little bit disappointing in terms of the the, the kind of the after effects, the hanging around quality. So I'd give it a five and a half. Anytime that I'm asked to score something out, I feel like my my years and years of reading Roger Ebert film reviews and his four star scale uh, has really just made <laughs> made that the baseline for everything for me. And when I think about the balance of this whiskey. So considering the tasting experience overall, was anything standing out in a you know, in an insanely positive or an insanely negative way, or was it fairly consistent? I feel like this is a three-star movie version of a whiskey. Like, it's good. I'm glad that I had it. I enjoyed it. Uh, but nothing really stood out to me. And so on the balance, I don't, I don't think I'm going to like ding it there, Brad, but I think I will just give it a 7.5 out of 10. Yeah, I'll give it a 6 out of 10. Oh, uh, there, okay. Yeah, it, it was decently balanced, but... There wasn't any one area that stood out, and it got consistently worse as I went along. So for me, the balance was a little bit of a struggle. It's interesting. You you talk about the star rating. We used to, when I worked on Empire Magazine, we had a five star rating. Mm -hmm. There seemed to be, as far as the film PRs were concerned, a huge gulf between three and four. That was the biggest gap. They wanted four and three somehow was never good enough. And this is this is this is a three star, three star bourbon. And to my mind, that's good. Yeah, that's that's a high quality. It's a decent movie. It's a mid range John Hughes movie you can watch on a Christmas afternoon and enjoy. It's a knuckle buck of of kind of uh, bourbons, but not quite up there with the planes, trains, and automobiles bourbons. <laughs> All right, Brad, I'm turning it over to you, our resident knower of prices for our last (laughs) category here, which we call value. So we usually base this off of how much it sells for in our home state of Ohio. Prices vary throughout the United States, and we will also get to how much it costs for Ian in the UK in just a moment. But Brad, how much is this in Ohio? In the wonderful state of Ohio, this will set you back $40. Okay. In the UK, without taxes included, this is selling for 36 pounds. So uh, roughly equivalent, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, Brad, I think this is a little too expensive. Um, yeah. This used to be priced at 35. It seems like they've raised the price a little bit. At 35, I was going to give it a 7 out of 10. 
at 40, I think I'm just going to give it like a five and a half out of 10. There's a lot better whiskey you can get for $40 than this. Yeah, I I actually think that this is a, a pretty rough price point. Honestly, $35 is decent, but even there, I don't think I would give it a very high score. I think that this is like a $27 whiskey that's you're they're asking you to spend 40 bucks on. Huh. I'm going to give it a three and a half out of 10. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, we're approaching right. like Basil Hayden's levels of uh, <laughs> of poor value here, Brad. It seems like well, this might I, be like a recurring theme for Jim Beam. I was about to say, the, <laughs> who, who makes Basil Hayden? <laughs> there you go. All right, Ian, what do you think? Well, 36 pounds sounds, sounds expensive to me for what it is. And there's some very decent scotches and some very decent Irish whiskeys around for about 25 that I would prefer to drink than this. Mm-hmm. So it, it tastes uh, overpriced. It feels overpriced for the taste. So I'm going to give it five out of 10 in terms of value for money. All right, gentlemen, that is bringing my final score on this out to a 34.5 out of 50. Brad, Ian, what are you coming out to? Uh, I am at a 29.5 out of 50. Okay. And you're asking me to do the math. Where did I start? Seven and a half. <laughs> I'm roughly about the same as Brad, I reckon. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's bringing Brad and me out to a score of 64 out of 100 or just a 32 out of 50. Now, normally 35 out of 50 is about our baseline where we start recommending that you at least try the whiskey. So we're a little bit below that. Brad, I don't think this is a bad whiskey, and it was it was pretty central to my early whiskey journey because it was readily available. It was 100 proof, and I thought it was pretty darn good. I don't know if we've just had so many whiskeys now that I've tried a lot better ones or if the quality of this has decreased, but I can't say that I really recommend it, even as like a starter whiskey. Yeah, I, I think that there's enough other options around the $30 range that, in in my opinion, are just better whiskeys. That if I'm if I'm recommending you start in the world of bourbon specifically, then I yeah, I'm not gonna recommend this. Ian, what do you think? Would you recommend trying at the bar yeah. or buying a bottle? Or neither? <laughs> I, I can't imagine buying a bottle. Uh, you know, you very kindly sent me a bottle, so I'll get through it. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but um, in terms of, yeah, would I choose it? Not not necessarily. There are better options, as Brad said, I think, for the money and for cheaper. Um, it doesn't persuade me that bourbon would be the drink of choice. It doesn't move me from whiskey to bourbon. Mm. It keeps me on the whiskey side. So, you know, uh, maybe it doesn't doesn't quite do the trick. Well, I guess the the only question left to ask is, is this whiskey sufficiently high octane enough to match up with our film for today? I don't think this whiskey can kick enough ass to keep <laughs> keep up with T2. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, the whiskey might have been a bit of a letdown, but this movie certainly isn't. So what do you say we get back into discussing Terminator 2? Let's get to it. Let's do it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
All right, everybody, that was Knob Creek Bourbon, a whiskey that we're a little bit split on, but overall, yeah, it's a good show. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it used to be better at $35. Yes. The, the price hike is really, really kind of pissing me off, Brad. Yeah, it, it makes it difficult to uh, recommend, but you know what's very easy to recommend, Bob? Uh, is it Terminator 2 Judgment Day? It's Canada's favorite segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood. Oh, Two Facts and a Falsehood, uh, at which I am performing quite poorly this season. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been <laughs> ringing your bell, I think. <laughs> I had your number last season, man. That was I went on like an 11 game winning streak. Yeah, I, I spent some time in the offseason retooling my roster, you know, getting <laughs> getting things ready. And I, doing money I think, ball analytics. Yeah, yeah. Yes, analytics. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for those who are uninitiated, two facts and a falsehood is where Brad presents three items to me about uh, the behind the scenes making of this film. All of them are presented as fact, only one of which we think is a complete fabrication. And I have to uh, suss out which one is the falsehood. I'm not doing well. I'm I think a game or two under 500 still. And we are about to wrap up the season. So I got to get a couple here. Brad, before you start, I have to make a proposition to you. Last time we had a guest on the show, you told me that I was allowed to enlist the guests, the <laughs> guest to help with this. But I'm trying to remember what your bargain was. That All right. If... Here's, here's the deal, Bob. Okay. Let's hear it. If you answer without Ian's help, you mm -hmm. get two wins. If you answer and if you lose, you just get one loss. Okay. If you answer with Ian's help, you get one win if you're correct, but two losses if you guys are wrong, because there's two of you. The pressure's on. I was going to say, if Ian gets this wrong, I feel like I should just incur nine losses. <laughs> but man, I mean, you know, Ian, I don't mean to put no you on the spot here, but you, you, wrote, you wrote the book, man. Come on. <laughs> All right, Brad, I'll take you up on that. Let's uh, let's hear your two facts and a falsehood. All righty. Fact number one, for the Los Angeles River sequence, Arnold was in quite a bit of pain because he could not wear a glove while cocking the gun. So his fingers and, and his uh, hand would get ripped up um, in the, the mechanism. However, he also would sometimes hit Edward Furlong in the back of the head with the gun, almost <laughs> knocking him out at one point. Okay. Fact number two. Fact number two, Edward Furlong and Dan Cooksey, who played uh, his young friend Tim, they were actually good friends in real life, having grown up going to school together in Southern California. Mm, okay. Fact number three, Edward Furlong and Arnold Schwarzenegger got along famously well. Uh, the young actor had grown up without a father figure. And Linda Hamilton joked from time to time that there were some really excruciating moments where she would listen to Arnold give Furlong advice about women. And she stated that they did so well together because they were, quote, emotionally the same age, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I've really loved about researching some of the making of this film is how opinionated Linda Hamilton is off <laughs> offset. It's been really refreshing to see how brutally honest some of these quotes are. Uh, one, I think, Sorry. Brad, is true or at least components of it are true. I feel like I remember hearing about the getting the head bumped by a gun. Number two is interesting because I was hoping that we'd bring up the character of Tim at some point. This actor, I don't think was in all of the movies that I think he was in, but there is just this like 
the floodgates opened in the late 80s and early 90s for like <laughs> redheaded best friend kids. Mm-hmm. I thought this was the kid from Big for a minute. I don't think it is, Brad. Yeah, and he, ca- he kind of reminds me of the catcher from the Sandlot a little bit. <laughs> not so not so freckled, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And, and so he has a face that I feel like I've seen him in 50 movies, but I have no idea if they knew each other beforehand. Before I make my selection, Ian, do you know the falsehood? Just from I hearing think, those three I things. I think I do. Hmm. Um, but they've been very well phrased by Brad to, to put a bit of ambiguity in. I Like you, I think the first one is true um, because yeah, he, he burnt his fingers on the on the gun and it was difficult to read that whole kind of spinning reload thing was very difficult. So I think that is true. And um, so, I th- so I suspect one of the other two is false. All right, I'm going to go ahead and just bring Ian on board here. I feel very good about knowing that number one was a truth. So, Ian, which one is your suspected falsehood? I, I think the middle one is false because uh, Linda Hamilton, that, that's such a classic Linda Hamilton quote. I know that the chemistry was great. I know mm-hmm. there's a lot of jokes between Furlong and Schwarzenegger, and that's classic Schwarzenegger to talk to him about women. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, that the rings true to me, the, the third one about Linda Hamilton, you know, where she talks and her attitude, and it rings true about the, the kind of the attitude on the set. I wonder whether the, the two actors, the two young actors probably weren't friends. Cause I imagine that the, the other kid probably was up for the part and just didn't get it. So they brought him in <laughs> as, as a, to play the mate. Cause he was right ahead. So my, my feeling is the middle one is untrue. I like it. I think I was leaning towards number two as well. I would be really fascinated to hear if they were actually sworn enemies instead of best friends. But, <laughs> all right, Brad, we're going to lock in number two as the falsehood. Bob, you are 100% correct. That yeah. is the falsehood. <laughs> all it takes is me getting perhaps the world's leading expert on James Cameron <laughs> to, to get a victory at this game. Man, I, I tried to go pretty vague and and off this, you know, the sidelines, stay away from James Cameron himself a little bit. But Ian, you did it, man. <laughs> they, was, they were well phrased, though. I wasn't 100%. I was like, hold on. You know, that last that's, one, maybe it's the way you're saying it. You know. That's the thing I've learned. The falsehood yeah. just has to sound like it could be true. And it yeah. throws Bob into conniptions about where it might, <laughs> where the truth actually lies. All right. Let's get back into talking about this movie. Brad, I'm once again, this is your first time seeing it. So I want you to kind of direct our conversation on the back half here. What haven't we talked about yet that you really want to make sure we touch on? Uh, I think two things. I think that I want to talk about the theme. We we touched on it very briefly, but it feels like he kind of starts and ends the movie with these fiery pictures of the death of childhood. Hmm. Like I, for me, it was incredibly impactful the way he filmed a children's playground wreathed in flames. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really fascinating bit of subject matter, more along the thematic lines of what Cameron's trying to do here. But mm-hmm. I think the other thing we have to talk about is the idea of a machine made out of liquid metal is terrifying. And <laughs> I don't know if there's many things more horrifying than it that have ever been created. I mean, you you look at the character of of Agent Smith you know, or, or the agents in general in the Matrix movies, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's completely a logical conclusion of of the T-1000. Like, oh, like yeah. that would be the upgraded version of the T-1000. So, like, it, it's a hugely influential idea, and the, the CGI here is just incredible, for its time especially. 
for sure. Yeah, let's yeah. talk a little bit about your first thing, though. And I really love that as a thematic element here, the death of childhood. You know, Cameron is kind of consumed with apocalyptic imagery in the Terminator films, even the the genesis of the Terminator idea very famously came to Cameron when he was uh, really ill while over in Italy filming his first film. And uh, he had this fever dream of a, a metal skeleton emerging from fire. <laughs> it terrified him so much that he went and wrote the Terminator out of it. And I really do think, Brad, that that imagery is so key to understanding so much about this movie and not just the death of childhood, but the way that in particular, John Connor's childhood has been stolen from him by the, you know, the looming specter of what's going to happen. And also by the fact that, you know, he did, he's never had a father figure in his life, that his mother is now in an asylum. It's really, really great metaphorical imagery. And we'll get into this in a little bit, but I think sometimes Cameron, the writer, doesn't trust Cameron, the like the visual filmmaker enough. And he's doing so much visually that clearly communicates his points. And I think that that opening credit sequence and that, you know, the few times they return to that, it it gets the point across better than his dialogue does. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I think that that Furlong's delivery of a lot of the lines about his mom, especially at the start of the film, I think are really incredible. I, I think yeah. that the way he sets up uh, Danny Cooksey, our aforementioned Tim, uh, I think the way that he sets him up by being like, yeah, my mom taught me how to steal this money. And his friend's like, oh, that's pretty dope. And he goes, no, she sucks. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and later in the movie, he talks to Arnold about it, I, I think. And he says, like, I used to think that this is how all kids grew up. And then I realized my mom was insane. And now I'm starting to think that she's not so crazy after all. Like the the way Cameron writes those things in, it gives you an idea of the the depths of Sarah Connor as a character and the the struggle that she has, the nightmares that she has about a motherhood that she has missed out on. I I just think he does a really great job of weaving that throughout the entire film. Well, in terms of the thematics yeah. here, right? Like this is probably I would argue the most Spielbergian of Cameron's movies that we've watched. It, like it goes so deep into the dynamics of a broken family and and childhoods that are affected by broken families. But Brad, you're absolutely right. And Cameron wants to make the theme of this movie in so many ways that it is a metaphor for the way that you grow up into understanding your own parents, I think. And like you just traced it with that line of dialogue that you you grow up as a child thinking, oh, this is how everybody lives. And my parents are flawless people and I take everything they say at face value. You go through that phase, that rebellious adolescent phase where you think your parents are insane and everything they say is wrong. And then you come out the other side and you get a much more nuanced portrait of who your parents are and the fact that they are not perfect people. They're flawed individuals, but maybe they're not as crazy as you thought they were. And I just love that he constructs this huge apocalyptic fable around <laughs> yeah. such a small little emotional narrative. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you're just saying it. It's like what Cameron does, he does the huge, the apocalyptic, but ties it into intimate ideas. Mm -hmm. So we only ever see you know, the, the idea of the judgment day through Sarah Connor's vision of a playground going up in conflagration, an incredible nuclear explosion sequence. And it's right there across Cameron's films, this idea that 
adulthood is not to be trusted. Adulthood has mm. got it wrong. Adulthood has created Skynet. Adulthood is the is Wayland Utani in Aliens. When when it comes to Newt in Aliens, you know she knows. You know she was always told there were no monsters, but that's not true. She knows she's been lied to and had mm-hmm. to, has had to survive on her own. You know, Edward Furlong's characters had kind of to survive on his own to get his own street smarts. So there's this idea that um, adulthood is not not to be trusted. It's sort of there in the Avatar film, certainly the sequel as well. That you know what's going on above them, and it's that kind of marriage of uh, the big stuff, the the apocalyptic stuff, with these kind of metaphors for ruined childhoods, for for lost mm-hmm. worlds of innocence. Lost innocence is almost one of the abiding themes in Cameron's work. Sarah Connor loses her innocence in the Terminator. You know, there's no innocence virtually in aliens, or in a sense, the the Marines are like children going in, and they lose their innocence. So it's it's really interesting what you're saying about imagery of of childhood and imagery of sort of childhood ruined. And yeah, it, it, the great subject of Cameron's films often is the nuclear family in every mm-hmm. sense. It's the nuclear family of the unit, and you know he applauds the unit and wants to rebuild the unit. But at the same time, it's a nuclear family because they're going to go up in flames unless something is done about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think another interesting analogy to aliens that I, I hadn't really thought about before was how Paul Reiser in Aliens represents kind of what you said of adulthood ruins everything. Yeah. And, you know, their greed and their desire for power. I think it's interesting that he once again subverts that trope that, you know, he established in Aliens, not necessarily in Terminator, but with the character of Miles Dyson played by Joe Morton. Like you you have somebody who, yes, he is searching after power. He is curious. He is innovative, all these things. And yet when faced with the destruction of mankind, he changes his tune and and he you know becomes a heroic figure in the end and so i think even that is an interesting example of how cameron continues to subvert these ideas in t2 that he has set up in multiples of his previous movies yeah everything's inversion in 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 t2 it inverts all virtually all his other films it kind of stands alone in some ways within the cameron canon but of course, the, the kind of the, the one of the major themes, certainly in Terminator Two and, and across his work, is the classic fifties theme of scientific hubris mm. of technology out of control due to mankind's kind of avarice and greed and ambition, and that's within itself, you know, the, the great irony of, of Cameron, you know, the most innovative filmmaker there's ever been, always makes films about, you know, the wrongs of technology <laughs> and what a kind of devastating power it can be. Right. You know, Avatar is all about the primitive being praised and the technological being the enemy. And to some extent, that's true of Terminator 2. You know, technology, you know, is, is a devastating force that the metal man from the future, the, the nuclear apocalypse that's coming, uh, you know, Miles Dyson learns the error of his ways, but you know it's already that far along. It's already kind of heading towards where the, the film is going. Science is not to be trusted. I want to talk a little bit before we get into Cameron's technological achievements here, mm-hmm. or I guess I should just say technical achievements here, because there's there's so much practical uh, effects going on as well. I want to talk about my big gripe with Cameron, and it's been my big gripe with Cameron throughout the four weeks that we've talked about this, and it's the major gripe that everyone has with them, and it's Cameron as a dialogue writer. And 
Brad, there's been a few filmmakers on the show over the years that I've said this about, and it's that Cameron, the writer, and specifically the dialogue writer, often seems at odds with Cameron, the visual filmmaker. And it seems sometimes like for as clear and concisely as he can frame something visually and get his point across, and as much as he understands the audience's expectations and what they need in that moment, it just seems like he wants to add a couple lines of voiceover or dialogue to really drive that point home when it's not necessary. And I think the biggest, uh, the most egregious one for me in in this film is the very final line of the film where Sarah Connor is narrating over the the images of them driving down the highway. And she's basically saying like, well, I wonder if humanity can learn our lesson this time. And it's like, yeah, we got that, Linda Hamilton. You didn't, you didn't need to you didn't need to make that statement. Especially because there are so many great little moments earlier in the film. Like with Arnold when he is having that conversation with Edward Furlong as they're watching children play again. And Edward Furlong asks him, "Hey, we're not going to make it, are we? Like humans. We're we're not going to we're not going to make it." And Arnold says, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. And that's all he has to say. And even throughout the film and after they've finally accomplished what they need to accomplish, there is still that lingering question of, is it in our nature to destroy ourselves? And if this, you know, this metal robot essentially can learn to make a sacrifice and display what humanity can truly be for us, will we allow ourselves to take that lesson. And it's all right there. And I don't feel like he needs to be spoon feeding us that exact line 10 seconds later to end the film. Maybe it's just me, but I think if there is one overarching flaw with the film, it's that Cameron, the writer, sometimes doesn't trust either the audience or himself as a visual filmmaker and feels like he needs to go one step further. I'm going to let Ian answer that question before (laughs) I give my very deep thoughts on the issue. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I think you're. Tr- I think you're right in, in some respects. He's often criticised for the corny nature of his dialogue, the obviousness. I mean, he's not um, a subtle storyteller, shall we say? I think he can sure. be a very subtle imagist, and I think he can be very subtle with how he puts things together. But in terms of his storytelling, I think they are fairy tales, and often fairy tales are told in a very blunt way, an obvious way. I mean, what you can't deny is how popular he is. So clearly he does communicate to Mm -hmm. large audiences. Um, And I I think his films are very um, kind of ripe uh, in terms of sort of the the kind of characters and the emotions that are portrayed. We don't have to go looking for how people feel in, in these films. We get it. We're told it. Um, yeah, you know, it, it comes and goes. I think some of his dialogue can be great. I, I go back to Aliens, and I think some of the, the dialogue is really memorable, and it works in the context of the film. I think often what how Cameron functions as a director is that the tempo of the films is so strong, mm-hmm. the momentum and the tension, that in some ways the dialogue has got to compete against that. So it has to be very broad just to sort of be heard amidst the, the, the kind of chaos and that can sometimes lead him down a path of being a bit too blunt. Yeah, I, I, I really take your point. I, I think, yeah, he, he sometimes he's, he doesn't learn the error of his ways. But then he'll go, yeah, why do I need to? Because it, these films are communicating very quickly and clearly. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a balancing act, I think. 
I was going to say, what do you guys think about the voiceover in this? Like, like that's a pretty big departure from the first film. And to have her not just narrate the opening of this film, but, you know, there's three or four times throughout the yeah. movie where she's narrating. Do you guys feel like that worked here? I, you know, obviously the final line wasn't a big hit for Bob, but but overall, <laughs> what what effect do you think that had on the film? Well, I think there was a fun, there was a sort of functional element to it in that he also Cameron also had to cater for the fact that not everybody will have seen The Terminator because The Terminator, mm. as you said, was a horror movie. It's a slasher movie. It was an adult movie. And this obviously was a broad-based blockbuster that they wanted to get kids in. So they had to communicate a lot of information ahead of time. So it's sort of a mm-hmm. functional element. Also, the, the ending is interesting because Cameron has shot that different ending that's on the special edition, I think, mm-hmm. where we see the world tidied up and the old Sarah Connor looking at the playground. And at the very last minute, I mean, literally the 11th hour of post-production, he had a huge argument with Carolco, the production company, who wanted the, the more ambiguous ending, and he lost that argument. And they put the, the road ending in, so the opportunity for sequels was still in there. So I think there was a little bit of sort of putting something in to kind of fix the ending very quickly that may have made the, the final speeches a little bit obvious. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think, you know, if you want to, assume that Cameron did this intentionally, and I, I'm sure he did, but there is a voiceover at the end of the first film. It's Sarah narrating yeah. her sort of tape that she's recording to John, who is still, she's pregnant at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I forgot about that. And I think it's interesting that he does carry that over into this film. And you're right, Ian, I think it's probably more functional than anything else, but it's really interesting that in this film, she's not talking to John. She's talking to humanity. Like, she You know, she is portrayed as the mother of John in the first film. And in a lot of ways, she's being portrayed as the mother of humanity or, you know, humanity's hope in the second film. And so her comments are much more broad and they're directed toward the human race in general. I really like that Cameron did kind of expand on that idea and who she's communicating to. I think once again, like, you know, I could take or leave some of what she says. I love the scene where Arnold and Edward Furlong are bonding at that sort of like, you know, underground militaristic site. And then she goes, you know, I never realized it till right now, but we make a pretty good family. And I'm like, Cameron, <laughs> come on, dude. Like, we get it, man. I was so, if, yeah, go ahead, Brad. No, I was just going to say, if you wanted to be like super technical about it, Bob, which I know you appreciate. Oh, so yeah. I'll, I'll go oh, there. I do. The uh, the voiceover in the first film was a diegetic voiceover. Whereas true. in the second film, yeah. it was non-diegetic. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's true. You know, definitely a very different, different take. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I bring up the whole idea of my my main drawback on Cameron because now I want to move into Cameron's. I mean, like lasting, shining legacy, which is him as brilliant technical filmmaker. Brad, honestly, I don't know if we've we've looked at a filmmaker this season who is as good on a technical level, except maybe Spielberg. That guy's a genius at where to place the camera and how to move the camera. And Cameron directs his action scenes. I I think I said earlier the word that I liked to use was concise. We've said direct as well. Um, There's really like no frills about it. It's not super convoluted. You get a good sense of the geography, um, but he just seems to have really good coverage. You know, I, I, I think about the scene where Cyberdyne blows up and the way that they're filming it from helicopters, the way they're filming it from on the ground. He knows, hey, I've got one shot to blow up a building. I need to get good coverage on it. And he does a really good job with that kind of stuff. Um, This, you know, this movie is known for introducing 
elements of CGI that just really didn't exist before. He had toyed around with this and kind of used his prior film, The Abyss, as proof of concept for what he could do with the T-1000. But I think, Brad, like with Jurassic Park, this movie shines so much because it uses the CGI sparingly. And it does it, you know, in 1991, it did it because of budgetary constraints and just the fact that they couldn't really churn this out at the rate that they could today. But it also meant that Cameron had to go back to his roots and complement the use of the CGI with these outstanding practical effects. I think I read today that Cameron estimated that only 42 shots in the movie used CGI. Whereas today, I mean, that would be it would be, you know, 2000 or more in this film. Everything would have been CGI. But there is such a like, I don't know, there's a tangible kind of nature to so much of this film. And I love that the constraints of the technology meant that it was used better and that everything supported it so that you really did have those wow moments. Yeah, it's been fascinating for me. I've been getting into anime a little bit more recently with a good friend of mine, and we've been watching this show called Attack on Titan. And something he's pointed out to me is that within the world of anime, it's obviously mostly hand-drawn, but they do use CGI from time to time because it's just so much cheaper than than hand-drawing every single scene. And the thing that he has pointed out to me that has like completely changed the way I look at CGI is that it's just too smooth <laughs> that that when you use CGI for everything, for for the city around you, for all the background character, for, for all the stuff, it's the human soul can just tell that it's it's too smooth. It's too perfect. It's it's not broken up enough and it honestly makes me think about the matrix when they you know they talk about the first version of the matrix was too perfect and humans couldn't handle it they needed a little bit of imperfection and i think that's kind of how i feel about my movies like i need the raw feel of actual helicopters being flown through the sky of buildings actually exploding it just comes across so much better and when you use cgi as you said sparingly I think you get masterpieces like this. And it's also, you know, the, the direction needs to test himself. You know, one of the uh, you know, up or downsides, however you want to, you know, maintain it, it about the Avatar films is essentially Cameron's got free reign to take as much time as you want to spend as much money as you want to push computer technology to fulfill everything he could possibly want from them. And what is not happening is he's not being tested against the world. So how do I put this stunt together on a freeway? How do I mount this chase? Because there are limitations called gravity and physics <laughs> that I'm going to be up against so I can do nothing. And I, I adore that because I think it brings the best out of Cameron. And as you were saying, there's a tangibility to those things. And they're included in the way the T-1000 is depicted. As you say, there, there is a limit to the amount of CGI shots they could do, mostly because of processing power. It took them the nine months of production, you know, to create the same amount for the CGI in the film as the whole of the rest of the film. So it took that long to process the shots. So Stan Winston had to step up and do a lot of what we think of as CGI when we look at it, but actually it's practical effects, mm -hmm. the kind of pretzel head, exploding head of the T-1000, the kind of the blooming roses of silver when he's shot with bullets. That's all Stan Winston. And the genius is how Cameron edits the, the CGI into the film. 
And so these limitations, I think, bring the best out of Cameron, that he he's at war with the world to create his film. And I love, you know, the, the stunt work in, in, in T2, you know, the, the, the kind of tow truck coming off the bridge into the storm drain and the stress wave going back through it. You know, that's almost like a metaphor for the whole film. It's like a stress wave through metal. And the incredible highway chase, in which there is CGI elements, but, you know, there's a guy, there's a stunt helicopter pilot flying a chopper underneath a bridge, which had never been done. And they had to sort of damp down all the dust. And they, it was you know, a really risky shot, totally against aviation rules. And they, sh- they flew a helicopter underneath a bridge. And that's the James Cameron I love. I think I was reading today about one scene that I did not think was a stunt or that I didn't think was done practically. And it is the scene where Jeanette Goldstein, who plays uh, John Connor's stepmom, has been taken over by the T-1000 and, and kills his stepdad. And you see that her arm has become a sword and that it has gone straight through his mouth and that it's impaling him up against the, the cabinetry. And all of that was done practically. They had designed a prosthetic for her to insert her arm into that blended gradually down into a sword. And the guy that played John Connor's like foster dad had done weeks and weeks of sword swallowing training so that they could literally <laughs> stick this thing into his mouth and have a thing coming out the back of his head that looked like he was impaled. And it's just incredible to think about <laughs> the level of detail that went into yeah, a yeah. shot like that. But again, there there's such a tangibility to it that it doesn't feel like it's made in a computer. And I think that's, you know, Brad, I also just wanted to talk about Jeanette Goldstein for a minute. So that's why I brought that one up. Yeah, yeah. I I was going to say, at what point do you think the the sword swallowing actor was training for it? He just had the thought, I am not getting paid enough for this. (laughs) (laughs) Brad, uh, did you recognize Jeanette Goldstein from any of the other Cameron films that we've done? I did not. At all. Cameron uses her very well. So we saw her just a couple weeks ago in Aliens as Private Vasquez. Oh, That's okay. Her. Yeah, she was incredible as, as Vasquez. She is also uh, responsible for continually just shattering me emotionally in Titanic. She yeah. is she is the mother of the Irish twins that tucks her kids into bed as the ship is flooding and tells them the story about the land of Tirnanad or whatever it is. Yeah. Brad. I like I will never forgive that woman for what she has done to me emotionally. But but yeah, Cameron seems to be returning to her uh, pretty continually in some of these films that we've watched. So I wanted to give her a quick shout out. Yeah, add a girl. That was yeah, she really does an incredible job in this. I will say I I love the and there's a lot of different movies that kind of do this in different ways, but I love the Freaky Friday acting challenge of like not only does Robert Patrick have to learn how to play like a robot and Arnold, but also, you know, these other characters that they turn into have to act out what it would be like to be a robot in addition <laughs> to their own role. And so I just I think that that's really fun to think about from a acting technical acting standpoint of like this role doesn't just include playing a stepmom. It also plays a killer robot. <laughs> that's very true. All right, guys, we're winding down here for the day. Before we let Ian uh, do a very important couple plugs here, because I I really want everybody to buy this book. We're going to do our last couple segments, the first of which we call Let's Make It a Double. This is where we pair up our movie of the day with another film to make our perfect double feature. 
Brad, since I am already rambling on, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and go first. Cameron mentioned this film in one of the interviews that I watched uh, as background for this episode, and he talked about the Iron Giant. And I love the Iron Giant, and that's going to be my pick for today. And he said that, you know, his goal was to make people weep at the sight of a Terminator and to weep tears of emotion and not, you know, fear. And I think that's exactly what you get in a movie like The Iron Giant, which in a lot of ways borrowed heavily from T2. But the idea of the large, lovable, played kind of buffoonish, super intelligent robot that actually makes self-sacrifice for the human race. There's, you know, there's obviously a nuclear subplot and everything else there. So I think The Iron Giant lines up pretty perfectly with Terminator 2. That's my pick. Good one. Yeah, that that is a good one, Bob. I for me, I think I'm going to make this a double with a Tom Cruise Steven Spielberg collaboration. I think I'm going to pair this up with Minority Report. Oh, nice. I didn't know if you were going to go War of the Worlds or Minority Report. <laughs> no, I I think Minority Report makes the most sense for me just with the idea of Tom, you know, protecting this young girl and and trying to to seek out the truth and go on an, you know, an action adventure. I, I think that they would pair really well together for a really entertaining night of sci-fi action movies. You may have just set the record for number of Tom Cruise references in one of our episodes that has nothing <laughs> to do with that Tom has Cruise. nothing to do with Tom Cruise. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh man. All right, Ian, what do you think? Okay. Well, my choice is, Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, I love it. Okay, and it's going to be a hell of a night watching these two films together. <laughs> um, one of the reasons is that both T2 and Mad Max Fury Road are kind of based on Shane, and they're about the mythical figure coming out of the desert, helping to save the day, and then mm. disappearing back into the desert. You know, the boy weeps, and that's kind of Terminator 2. He arrives and he goes. And then, of course, it's kind of Fury Road as well. Uh, this Max comes at the beginning. He has no background. He's dressed in leather. He doesn't talk a lot. He kind of helps the helps the kind of you know Furiosa and then the and the rig get there and back again. And of course, they're two films that are just wonders of physical stunt work and you know visceral filmmaking put together. And they're both kind of dystopian, and you know they're both kind of great monuments to excitement on the cinema screen. I love that. Honestly, you could pair Mad Max Fury Road in even the most tenuous way with any movie that we do. And I'd be like, yeah, I, it totally works. <laughs> Br brief encounter. I was just going to say, we did brief encounter a couple weeks ago. And I'm like, yeah, let's throw it in there. It's it's David Lean-esque. Sure. Why not? <laughs> There's deserts involved. Come on. You know? <laughs> All right, guys, it is time for us to score this movie. Ian, I, I, I'm sure this might be antithetical to your entire mission as a as a Cameron chronicler. But we give a movie a score out of 10. We can give half points, no quarter points. Okay. Brad, what would you give Terminator 2 on a scale of oh, 1 to 10? Man, I I think that Cameron took everything he did in Terminator, which which I, you know, I gave it a seven and a half. I thought it was solid, but not great. And just improved on it incredibly. I think that the acting is loads better in T2. I think that the 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 technical aspects of the film have come along so so far from 1984 in you know into 1991 that for me in 2022 watching this movie I did not have a single moment of this film where I was like, "Oh, that hasn't aged well." Mm -hmm. You know, and so 
I, man, this is truly one of the greatest action movies of all time. I think I will give it a nine and a half, Bob. I'm with you. 9.5. And I don't even know if my gripes with the few moments of voiceover and dialogue are enough to lower it a full half point from a 10. I think, honestly, the thing that's keeping me from giving it a 10 is that I also gave Aliens a 9.5. And I cannot definitively say if this or Aliens is the better film. And so <laughs> out, of, out of fairness to Aliens, I'm, I'm going to give this one a 9.5 as well. Wow. This is tough. This is tough. I might go eight and a half. Um, I, I agree with you guys in so much. Um, I think Aliens is probably the better movie. It's the one mm-hmm. I, I return to more. And the range of characters and the emotional journey of Aliens is incredible. And Aliens already already existed and, and Terminator already existed. So in some senses, Terminator didn't have to set up a world. It only had to capitalize on one. Sure. But I'm nitpicking because it's a fantastic movie and it's a fantastic sort of um, – emblem of what can be done with the sequel of how you don't just repeat it you can invert it and play with it and that irony but still had all the thrills that were there to begin with and that's cameron's great talent is to understand that so just fantastic um i give it eight and a half but you know probably you know there's a nine and a half inside my soul as well (laughs) well all right well there you have it uh nine and a half from brad and from myself Ian Nathan has given it an 8.5 out of 10. Ian also uh, has written the book on James Cameron, quite literally. We've alluded to it a couple times now. But Ian, tell us a little bit more about the book itself and where we can find it. Yeah, it's called James Cameron, A Retrospective. It tells the the story of his journey through films from his childhood in Canada, uh, right through his days at Roger Corman, which was very hands-on filmmaking, mm-hmm. you know, which is still carrying on right through to Avatar, The Way of Water. And, you know, as I alluded to earlier on, you know, every film Cameron's made has been an epic in, in, in terms of its production, a battle, and an astonishing kind of story of, of, of willpower. I mean, the, the story of The Abyss alone, you know, could fill a book. The Abyss is just an incredible kind of filmmaking struggle and yeah. achievement. So it's just a remarkable tale, and it was a thrill to write. And a thrill to sort of go on that journey through his films. Obviously, I timed it to to tie in with the the Avatar sequel, and you know, publishers do like a hook for their books. <laughs> um, but just you know, <laughs> uh, been a great thing to write, and I hope you know as people read it, they get some of what we've been talking to about you know on this podcast. You know, the the kind of passion, the the thematic work, the emotional work. And his gifts as a, as a storyteller, I think that's the the subtext of what I've done, is just really try to say that he, he's one of our great storytellers because his films are so compelling. Um, it's available from all bookshops, you know, online and offline. Um, and, you know, if you want to know about the, the guy and what he, what he does and what he achieves, then then it's a great read. Uh, these books that Ian makes are just incredible. I mean, uh, we, we did the Wes Anderson miniseries earlier in the season. I relied heavily on that Wes Anderson book. And what I love about them is that they are presented so beautifully as well. It's I mean, it's a coffee table book in the way that it looks, but is just so full of valuable insights and just rich, rich quotes. And I cannot speak highly enough uh, of these books that Ian is producing. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, I, I just got the Criterion Collection version of Grand Budapest. And like the the look and feel of the Criterion Collection version of that film 
feels similar to the the presentation of your book on Wes Anderson. So like I yeah, whoever you've got working for you doing doing your design is is <laughs> spot you. on. <laughs> I will let them know. I work with them a lot. So yeah, I will let them know that you appreciate it. All right. Before we let you go, Ian, I'm going to put you on the yeah. spot one more time. Uh, there's also been another major announcement from your end of the woods in the last few weeks, and uh, that is some updates on a film that you were working on. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm making a documentary about something very close to what we've been talking to this evening, and that's Aliens. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons I didn't pick Aliens as our conversation point was that I'm kind of heavily involved with it elsewhere, and I wanted to talk about <laughs> something else. <laughs> Um, it was kind of an opportunity that came up through the books and, um, it's a company that does sort of crowdsource documentaries. So, you know, fans invest and we get a budget and we go away and, and make these documentaries. They've made a terrific series of documentaries called In Search of Darkness. I don't know if you've mm. seen them, which are all about eighties and nineties horror. And we wanted to do one specifically about a film that has, a really passionate fan base, a really devoted fan base. And Aliens just, you know, fitted the bill. Uh, the fan base is astonishing and they're very devoted to it. And I'm going on a journey, interviewing cast and crew, interviewing fans, interviewing scientists and military historians and critics to try and understand not how the film was made, but why people love it so much. Mm. A little bit like what we've been talking about this evening in a, in a way to try and get to the kind of the kernel of what it is about these films that, that work so well. And we've only just begun. I have, I've spoken to Jeanette Goldstein, who was just fabulous <laughs> uh, to say she was just really great. Her memories were great. Um, so I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's a, it's a tall order. It's a challenge because, you know, aliens is beloved. Sure. And a lot of people know a lot about it. So I've got a sort of a long way to go, but it's, it's a great experience. That's incredible. All right. Well, this has been Ian Nathan. Uh, I'm going to be utilizing your work again in our next mini series because as this is the last James Cameron film for the season, we are pivoting to the Cohen brothers. Oh, wow. Uh, it was hard for us to narrow down to just a, a three week mini series. And so we're going to focus on comedies of the Cohen brothers. I think most of them could be considered comedies, but we're going with more of the broad comedies. So next week, we're kicking things off with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? We're going to be looking at Raising Arizona, and then we're finishing it off with The Big Lebowski. And your Coen Brothers book is literally sitting on the desk next to me. Can't wait to dive into that. Uh, and Brad, I cannot wait to introduce you to Raising Arizona, <laughs> which I think might be a perfect film. Yeah, I am incredibly excited for it. And I, I know I've said this before, but out of all of the, I think at this point, two to 300 films we've reviewed on this podcast one of the ones that sticks in my brain the most is Fargo. Yeah. Uh, that movie just, yeah, I am really excited to jump into the Coen Brothers these next few weeks. All right, everybody, we will see you next Monday as we kick off the Coen Brothers with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>